Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Kalee Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Coming up later in the show, NEPM's Nirvani Williams with a look at former Northampton educator Gwen Agna and Northampton photographer Shelley Rotner's new book about elementary school kids and gender identity. And Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid talking about science on screen at Amherst Cinema tomorrow night. Our first guest is John Sayles, screenwriter, director, editor, actor, and novelist. He's been nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay with 1992's Passion Fish and 1996's Lone Star. With nearly 30 films to his credit over the past four decades, it's also unsurprising that he has seven critically acclaimed books, both novels and short fiction, to add to that long list. His fifth novel has just been released, a piece of historical fiction titled Jamie McGilvray, A Renegade's Journey. He'll be at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley this Wednesday, as well as at a couple of other film and book events in the area in the near future that I'll tell you about in a little bit. John Sales, welcome to the show. It's an honor. Thanks. It's nice to talk to you all. Oh, I'm so psyched. Yeah. <laughs> Khalees was a film student and spent a great deal of time studying uh, your films. Yes. It's quite an honor. It is an honor. But we're here to talk about your book. Um, are we saying, because we've only read it and we've never heard it pronounced, is that how we pronounce Jamie's last name? Jamie McGillivray. McGillivray. A little bit of an extra. Yeah. And we'll talk about talking in Scottish in just a little bit. But I thought a good place to jump off would be uh, if you'd be so kind as to read a little bit uh, from the book. Yeah, I'll, I'll read you a little section. Uh, at this point in the story, uh, Jamie McGillivray has, uh, after having been kind of a captive and slave to the Lenny Lenape tribe uh, in central Pennsylvania, who, who we used to call the Delaware Indians, uh, he's become a clan member through various exploits of his own. And uh, we're in the longhouse in the middle of a very cold winter. Snow is piled up all around the longhouse. And he's sharing the story of his own clan, uh, the McGillivrays, um, and their defeat um, when they were part of the Jacobite cause, uh, trying to get the Scotland back from the English. Uh, and he's talking to the entire tribe as they're kind of pondering which side they're going to go on, the English or the French, what uh, we here call the French and Indian War, uh, where a mistake can be fatal to the tribe. We faced an enemy in the final great battle at a place called Culloden. He hears Kilbuck repeat the word softly, Culloden. The ground was wet and difficult to cross, and there was too much of it. He struggles to express this in Lenape. By the time a fast-running man could cross, his enemy could load and fire his rifle many times. But the son of our highest chief told us to attack, and the Highland men, the Highland men will do many things, and some of them are bad, it is true, but they will not shrink, shrink from a fight. Tears are running down Jamie's cheeks now. He has not thought of this for a long time, has not spoken of it since his captive countrymen were rowed away down the great river. The enemy shot us down with their muskets and cannon as one cuts the tall weeds with a long knife. The traitors, the Campbells, were there on our right behind a stone wall, but we ran forward. He does not know if they have a word for charge. Perhaps it is not one of their tactics when in battle. The McGillivrays, the McIntoshes, the McBeans, the Shaws, the McPhersons, the Camerons, the Stuarts, the McLeods, the McDonalds, McGregors, all the fine flower of the Highlands, 
the fiercest of our clans, lost. He sees Fox dreaming wipe a tear away, the old man staring into the council fire and rocking slightly, side to side. Our people, our ways, lost. Jimmy feels a bit dizzy. He sits. Silence. The fire crackles. The Lenape ponder their fate. That is an excerpt from the excellent book by the legendary John Sayles, Jamie McGillivray. He will be reading from this book at the Odyssey in South Hadley on Wednesday. <laughs> no, I, I loved it. <laughs> yes, it's a sweeping epic. It is. For sure. And it's, it's large, but it moves very, very quickly. But one of the things I was struck by, and then I guess we'll get back into actual historical context, is how there's this intimacy in the conflicts that arise, not just with Jamie McGillivray, but with Jenny, another character who comes up in the book. It's interesting that you've got these this contrast between like how intimate those battles are and how intimate the space outside of those battles are. Can you talk about like trying to get some balance while still making this move very swiftly in a 700-page novel? Don't yeah, be intimidated I, I, by the length, by the way. Yeah, don't, don't be. <laughs> yeah. The, this is a book that uh, starts at the Battle of Culloden, in 1746 and ends at the Battle of Quebec. So it's about 15 years of stuff. And a lot of what I was interested in writing it is to to think about what happens to people when they're kind of swept away and overwhelmed by events much larger than they are. Uh, you think of people in the Ukraine today and the decisions they have to make and, and the speed with which they have to make them. And uh, both Jamie and, and Jenny Ferguson are characters who are torn out of the life that they thought they were going to live, uh, transported instead of being hanged to the new world, and uh, kind of set loose to try to survive the best they can as the world doesn't stop to give them a break. One of the things that you notice immediately when you're reading this book is the use of language and the you, starting out with Scottish and almost a, a phonetic type of Scottish, which if you were to read it out loud, would sound like you were speaking with a Scottish accent. Is this an actual way that Scottish is written? Is this something that you decided to add to the book so that we would hear it with that kind of Scottish flair? Yeah, I do it to an extent. If you've ever tried to read Sir Walter Scott, um, <laughs> he goes way beyond that extent. And uh -huh. so you have to kind of you know plow through it. Um, so I suggest the the dialect. You know, I, I did a lot of listening to um, especially Highland Scott's talk. Um, some of it's, you know, uh, words that were are out of use now, even in Scotland. Um, there's some untranslated French in it. There's um, yes. There's a, a lot. bit of yeah, and, which is great. Because whenever it's not it's not literally translated, but there's even if you don't speak French, there's enough context around the French that you very quickly yeah. can figure out what's being said. You give it context, or you you know you use words that are very much like the English words, and and people can figure it out. Both of my characters are learning new languages. Right. Jenny, who's an illiterate, poor, poor girl from the you know highlands of scotland has to learn french during this jamie mcgillivray who's who's you know kind of a linguist speaks a lot of languages in the beginning but he has to learn this new indian language um, by hooker crook pretty much while he's you know being a a prisoner and a slave of the tribe just to survive and i want the 
the reader to have some of that feeling of, oh, I've got to figure this out if I'm going to know what's going on here. And with Jenny's story, it's interesting because she starts learning Creole and she's reprimanded for it and taught proper French. Mm -hmm. And so there's that distinction, too, between the two Frenches that exist where she is. Um, yeah, there's there's race, there's class, there's, you know, um, which, the, the Lenny Lenape had a, a saying, um, uh, there is no neutral in the woods. You have to stand mm-hmm. on one tree or behind one tree or the other. And uh, people are being asked to take sides in fatal, fatal circumstances sometimes without having the whole story, which is kind of like life. I would say that this is kind of an anti-colonial epic, but... Judging from the rest of your body of work, I would say it's not your first. What is it about that sort of story that is compelling to you? You know, I'm, I'm interested in the, the tension between the official story and uh, what actually happened, the complexity of what actually happened. Um, as, as we move away from events, we tend to mythologize them and make them into, you know, sometimes things that just make us feel good about who we are or you know, what country we belong to or what tribe we belong to. But if you go back and look at them, they're usually a lot more gray areas than black and white areas, a lot more complexity to it. And I'm always interested in, in digging into stories like that. What I thought was really interesting about this particular book, and we're speaking with author and filmmaker John Sayles, who'll be at the Odyssey on Wednesday about the new book, Jamie McGillivray, is the parallel between the Scots fighting the English in Scotland, and then this another character who's lost a battle there coming and fighting and deciding who he's going to fight for with the indigenous communities here uh, on these shores. This is a history that I think oftentimes uh, isn't told very well. I read the people's, uh, the indigenous people's history of the United States. The whole introduction is about how the English did the same thing to the Irish first. Is that um, was it intentional to want to show these two parallel colonial acts of of colonialism at, on the two different shores? Well, the the parallel that it was going uh, for the most was this question of, you know, who, who are the actual savages here? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I start in in England while they still have the bloody laws where if they really don't like you, they don't just hang you. They hang you until you're almost dead. Right. Then they mm-hmm. cut you down, cut out your viscera, make you look at it, throw it on a fire, and then chop you into four pieces. Um, and then you know some of those people get sent over where people are scalping and torturing and all that other stuff. Uh, and the other parallel is that the, the politics of Europe at the time were extremely complex. And what Jamie discovers when he starts to live with uh, Lenny Lenape is their politics are complex. Even before Europeans came, there were all these tribal alliances and one side, you know, kind of lording over another and difficult economic, you know, things to to figure out. So it, it wasn't the usual thing of, oh, these civilized people come over and run into a bunch of naked savages. We're speaking with author... John Sayles, who is the same John Sayles that you know from such excellent movies as Mate Wan and Passion Fish and Lone Star. And we'll have to talk a little bit about movies, at least, <laughs> coming up in just a little bit. But he is going to be presenting his new book, Jamie McGillivray, at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley this Wednesday. More with John Sayles coming up in just a minute. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. I don't love it. 
Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm delighted to welcome back our guest, John Sales, who has a, a great new book called Jamie McGillivray, The Renegade's Journey. He'll be at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley reading from this book on Wednesday. But we, uh, on this show, which is brand new, if you didn't know, John, uh, we've only been on for just about wow. a month, focus on what we love uh, about the four counties of Western Massachusetts. And you do have some connections here in the four counties of Western Mass. You are, are a Williams College alum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I escaped <laughs> from Williams College in one piece. <laughs> but you did meet a bunch of uh, your now famously frequent collaborators uh, as part of that uh, college experience in Williamstown, right? Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I'm married to Maggie Renzi, who was somebody I, I didn't really know at Williams, but was in a play with. Uh-huh. Uh, I've worked a bunch of times with David Strathairn and Gordon Clapp, who were uh, fellow students there. And, uh, you know, it was uh, there was not a theater major when I went there, uh, nor a film major. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that meant is that amateurs who really wanted to do it um, actually got to use the stage a lot. Wow. So tell me about what that was like. Did you was it almost like blazing your own course of of courses <laughs> or or were your courses totally separate and this was just what you were doing on the side? Yeah, you know, I, as I said, you know, I was a psychology major. I think David was a math major. Um, <laughs> but people who were interested in the theater, you know, there's this beautiful theater building there that the Williamstown yeah. Summer Theater takes place in. And uh, we got to be up on that sometimes. And then there was a little theater down in the basement that we, we were able to use a little bit more. And I think because it wasn't intimidating, you know, it wasn't part of your major. You weren't being graded on right, it. Uh, right. It made people a little bolder in the choices that they made as far as what plays they were going to do and how they were going to do them. Well, it's interesting because you as a filmmaker have inspired so many different filmmakers. Khalees studied your films in college, as oh, she okay. said many times. <laughs> but, you know, Tarantino and all these other people, um, they look to you, Spike Lee, uh, of, uh, as as an icon of filmmaking. But you've kind of always been on the outside uh, when it comes to your filmmaking. Is that yeah, that seems to it seems to be a mutual decision between me and Hollywood. Um, you know, I I am a screenwriter for for hire out there, but um, most of the movies that we've made would be things that even if we handed them to a studio for free, they really wouldn't know what to do with it. It's just not the kind of thing they usually do. Which is a shame because so they're we really were, lovely. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, we were lucky. We got in at a time when. Um, that independent uh, kind of, there were theaters that showed those kind of movies. There was an audience for it. Um, now it's easier to make a movie than it ever was with the cheap equipment and, and you know people knowing more about filmmaking, uh, even if they haven't been to, to film school. But it's very hard to get them on a screen in front of people. Right. Uh, that's where the bottleneck is. But some of them will be on screen on April 30th as part yes. of Cinema Storm. And I'm... I only just found out what movies they are, and I'm particularly psyched (laughs) because one of them is Brother from Another Planet. And I have to say that this is one of my earliest memories. One of my earliest film memories is seeing this movie with my uncle. Oh, cool. Um, (laughs) Which is – so what about that and Alligator – (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so for those who don't know, Cinema Storm is a monthly free culty movie night that I fully disclose I make no money off of, but I help produce with another local filmmaker who you have mm-hmm. produced many times, Bob Kraskowski. He's the one who wrote and directed The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot, an incredible movie starring Sam Elliott, produced by our guest, 
John Sayles. And on Sunday, April 30th, for free at the Shea, we're going to be screening Brother from Another Planet and Alligator. Well, Alligator is, you know, based on the urban myth of alligators down in the sewers of a big city and growing large and, you know, maybe kind of striking back eventually. Um, And then Brother from Another Planet is kind of an urban myth that I made up myself. Um, It came from a series of dreams that I had, and it's about uh, an escaped slave from outer space who lands in Harlem. Uh, He he looks in many ways like the residents of Harlem. Uh, he learns to dress and act a little bit like them, even though he's mute. And um, he's just another immigrant trying to assimilate. Uh, but he's got some abilities that most immigrants don't have and some uh, difficulties that most immigrants don't have. And we'll be screening them, and you'll be there at the screening on Sunday, April 30th at 7 p.m. for Brother from Another Planet as well as Alligator. And then the day before, if you miss uh, John Sayles at the Odyssey on Wednesday, you'll also be at the Montague Book Mail uh, the Saturday before that, April 29th, talking about your new book, which Kalise and I have both read, Jamie McGillivray. And uh, I'll be autographing anything you want to autograph, baseballs. (laughs) Eight Men Out is another great uh, film by, by John Sayles here. What I love about... I can't wait to see, I have not seen Alligator, but I can't wait to see it, (laughs) especially on a big screen, which will be really fun. It's really good. Yeah, but a lot of the other, you know, the the heavier topics that you cover, Mate Wan about, you know, labor issues and things. And this book, there there are all these really heavy topics, but done with such humanity. Um, When you're writing a book like Jamie McGillivray, it's in the present tense, which at first I I found it a little bit disconcerting because it was so active. Mm -hmm. Most books are in the past tense. When you're writing it, are you writing it as if it's a screenplay or are you thinking of it as a totally different medium? Uh, no, I'm thinking of it as a totally different medium. This one, though, uh, did start as a screenplay some 20 years ago. Robert mm-hmm. Carlyle, the Scots actor, mm-hmm. called me up out of the blue. Uh, I'd been recommended to him. And he said, I've got this great idea for a movie about a Highland Scot who's defeated at the Battle of Culloden. And instead of hanging him when he's defeated, uh, the English transport him to the new world and he gets involved with Indian tribes there. And I liked it so much. I wrote a screenplay on spec. Uh, we got to, to scout in the highlands of Scotland with Robert Carlyle and never were able to, to raise the money to make it into a movie. Um, then about 20 years later, I decided, yeah, it's such a great story. I should do something with it and started working on making it a, as a book. They're very different processes. I mean, when you make a movie, you have to be very aware of time. You know, are we 15 minutes into the story, a half hour into the story, almost finished with the story? Uh, And when you're writing a book, uh, you don't have all those other people like a a production designer or an art director or composer. So you have to describe everything if you want people to see it and be in it. And one of the you know, one of the techniques I've used in my last three novels is even though they're all kind of period novels to write them in present tense. Mm. It's mm. happening now. It's not it's not something that happened to a bunch of dead people mm. long, long ago. It really does put you in the middle of the action right away in a way that at first mm-hmm. it was a little bit disconcerting even, but then you grow into it for sure. <laughs> I don't think it's disconcerting. <laughs> like, I think, like, again, I think it lends to the general intimacy of the novel. Yeah. Like, this is a very close close story and it's easy to feel and it's easy to get into but I 
think that there's this interesting contrast between like your genre works in film, <laughs> or mm-hmm. at least what could be considered genre works, and some of your more straight-laced stories or more like directly historical stories that I find really compelling. Because again, like they're not told any differently or with any less like passion or compassion. Why, yeah, how do you I, I do should, that? <laughs> yeah, you know, you, I think you take genre stories almost like fables. Mm. Um, we're we're familiar with a horror genre. We're we're familiar with a hard-boiled detective genre. And what you do with them is you use that structure and those expectations of the audience, um, and then you play variations on them. Mm. So my movie Lone Star is very much like a western. Uh, there aren't horses in it. It's not in the West, but it leads up to a gunfight, you know, at high noon, uh, you know, in the center of the town. Um, and it has the structure of a Western where there's these increasing confrontations. So one thing that you want, when you make movies in, in any popular meeting, medium, you have to deal with the expectations of the audience. And then if you aren't going to satisfy them, or if you're going to twist them in some ways, uh, you have to be very aware aware of, you know, what you're doing, Uh, you know, especially in the casting. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's a dark and stormy night and, you know, Don Knotts knocks on the door, (laughs) it's very different. It's a dark and stormy and wacky night. But I mean, if it's dark and stormy and you've got a noir with Don Knotts, honestly, I'm a little compelled. I would like to see him pushed in that direction, actually, as an actor. But if it's the guy who played Freddy Krueger, it's a different movie. Fair enough. Fair enough. John Sayles, uh, last question before we let you go. Um, I don't want to ruin anything about this wonderful book, but is it possible that we will see some of the characters from this book in another book in the future? I don't think so. Ah. You know, I, I after I've done 700 pages on something, <laughs> I, I feel like I've mined that particular, you know, area pretty well. Uh, right now I'm working on a, a novel set at the Carlisle Indian School in oh. 1890. Wow. And uh, that's, you know, a, a project I've been working on for a while, and, and I'm pretty much immersed in that. Well, we can't wait to read that when it comes out. Can't wait to see you tomorrow, uh, Wednesday at the Odyssey mm-hmm. Bookshop in South Hadley. And then Saturday, April 28th at the Montague Book Mill. And then Sunday, April, oh, sorry, April 29th at the Book Mill. And then April 30th, the Sunday, the double features Cinema Storm, Brother from Another Planet, and Alligator, both films created by our guest, John Sales. Thank you so much for joining us here in the fabulous 413. Thanks for having me, guys. No problem. Coming up later in the show, NEPM's Nirvani Williams with a look at former Northampton educator Gwen Agna and 413 photographer Shelley Rotner's new book about elementary school kids and gender identity. Up next, Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid talking more about movies, science on screen with the movie After Yang at Amherst Cinema tomorrow night. Another story you should read. You're listening to The Fabulous 413. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe. We just had Academy Award-nominated filmmaker John Sayles on the air and announced that he's going to be doing an event at the Shea coming up later in April. But there is more exciting film happening in our area. You, apart from being an astronomer, are on the board of the wonderful Amherst Cinema in downtown Amherst. And tomorrow, coordinated with theaters all across the country, is a national evening of science on screen. Yes, and, and before I say anything further, John Sales. I mean, he's amazing. Isn't so, he? <laughs> uh, he? He's really uh, fantastic. And if you haven't seen his films, if nothing else, 
check out Lone Star. Love Lone Star. It's absolutely amazing. But all of his films are really cool. The real independent filmmaker. Like, you know, I mean, he writes, edits, everything he does it himself. And they're very thoughtful films. So two thumbs up for John Sales. But yes, so Sloan Foundation uh, has been funding Science on Screen in which they partner with many of the organizations that show films, uh, for example, Amher Cinema, and they bring in a film and they have somebody who talks about it as well. And of course, that theme has to be about science. And are yes. you that someone? What? Okay, <laughs> yes. So tomorrow, uh, so March 28th is not just a science on screen, but it's National Evening of Science on Screen, meaning to say uh, there are 24 film organizations across the U.S., all the way from California to Massachusetts, who are going to be having an evening where they're going to be showing a film, science-themed, and then pairing it with someone like me in this particular case. <laughs> so what's the film that Amherst Cinema is going to show tomorrow night? Tomorrow, we are showing the film After Yang. Having a yang. I don't know. He shut down last night. He won't restart. Has this happened before? No. If we can't get yang fixed, we're not gonna buy another sibling for Mika. It is an interior core problem. I need your permission to break open the core. We've always known that some bots are equipped with spyware. You might not want this bot in your house anymore. I saw it early last year, 2022. It's a fantastic film. It's directed by a Korean-American director, Kogunada. He's a fascinating guy, so I'm going to talk about him because the way he his films are, I mean, they actually go and... Uh, talk about like experiences of identity because he himself has sort of like in some ways two identities and they're Korean and American. Uh, this particular film has Colin Farrell in it from last year's stuff. If you remember Banshees of Inisherin, he was fantastic. He's the one who kept all his fingers. Oh, great. A spoiler <laughs> in there. Uh, but he's also really amazing in After Yang. This movie is in the tradition of thoughtful slow science fiction. So it's a slow burner. So if you are looking for, uh, for example, action pack, bam, bam, aliens and things like that, mm -hmm. this movie is not like that. But if you are looking for grappling with deeper questions about what makes us human, what makes us who we are, I think then uh, it is there. The premise of the film is that you are sometime in the future. We don't know exactly when. Something has happened. We are in a post-apocalyptic world. So that's actually really subtle. Uh, Kogunoda, the director, that's not his actual, uh, actual name, uh, but in fact, uh, this is uh, an homage to a screenwriter for a Japanese, famous Japanese director, Ozu Yosujiro. And so, but he really so used his screenwriter's name to use himself, like, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, as sort of like, you know, identifying himself as that uh, director. And this particular film, he talks about that when he thinks about post-apocalypse, what his attention goes to, forget about the main players, forget about all of these things, but what is happening to ordinary people? That's where the stories, real stories lie. Mm -hmm. And so in this movie, something has happened. We don't know what, 
but now we are living in this world which is a little off but there is also a lot of nature around it so you have interesting architecture where you have uh, trees growing in places where you don't expect and it's you are se seem to be living in in harmony with nature but there is also something off about it because everything is very neat and clean mm -hmm. so there is something unsettling because everything is very sterilized but it's also with nature architecture is really important Koganada's earlier film uh, is Columbus which is about Columbus Ohio and actually there is this really it's about emotions and architecture that's also a very thoughtful film so if you haven't checked out do check that out but in After Yang the premise is in this future, Colin Farrell, who's white, his wife, who's black, and they have a kid who is Asian uh, and who has been adopted. It was a young kid, young girl. Apparently, in this time, you can actually have robots that can be caretakers. And you can get robots that can specifically talk about culture. So they have an Asian robot who actually can provide cultural knowledge to this little girl because she's originally from or she was adopted from China. Well, let me stop you right there. There was a great article in the New York Times yesterday, well, great and somewhat chilling, about Italy and how elderly people in Italy are being cared for by AI robots that are like quizzing them and trying to make sure that they're staying mentally sharp, but using very Italian, culturally appropriate kind of questions. So this after Yang model is, is actually happening right now. And this is one of those th wonderful things about this particular film, After Yang, is that, so it takes that, where oftentimes when we think about robots, we think that the main question is, oh, is the robot like human or not? And the robot also in oftentimes in films like Terminator or other films like, you know, they want to be like human, right? Or they like, want to come kill us. Or they want to kill us. Come with me if you want to live. But but also sort of like the the higher standard is more like like data, for example, in yeah. Star Trek, want it to be human, right? Uh -huh. Like, you know, and whether they would do or not, that's a whole separate thing. Here, in many ways, it actually talks about, actually it doesn't care. Mm -hmm. And in fact, why do you want to be more like human? And that is an embedded message in there, but rather, the robot's question is whether it can be Asian or not. Mm. And that's an interesting twist to that. And then there is a really thoughtful conversations about adoptions, but a lot of it is about your identity. And so as myself, an immigrant from Pakistan, uh, it really resonated with me because here is a case where when you move from one place to another, you lose a lot of things. And again, oftentimes, when movies deal with immigrant experiences, a lot of it is about the loss. Or it's about the gain, like, you know, hey, I have adopted, this is a new country, and so on and so forth. But in reality, things are somewhere in the middle. And that is what this movie deals with. And I can test to that. I mean, yeah, I mean, when I moved here, and I've been here for over 32 years, I came here for my undergraduate. And right in the beginning, it was very hard. Everything was different. And I still miss things over there, especially I grew up in Karachi, so I miss sort of like, you know, those evening smells. I, I, uh, I grew up near the ocean over there, so there is a particular nostalgia about the smells of that particular ocean. Mm. Hey, you don't even see many stars in Karachi because of light pollution, but I love seeing those few stars. I actually have a nostalgia for a really light polluted sky <laughs> because, because I'm like, if I can only see three stars, I'm like, oh yeah, that reminds me of Karachi, right? <laughs> and so, and of course you have smells of food and, and other things. 
And so I still miss that. Talking about cricket, for example, of course, if I talk to you, like, you know, it's like, it's not going to go anywhere, but over there, it's the national language almost yeah. in that sense. But there is also a lot of gain, meaning to say I've been here for a long time and there are a lot of things that I've gained from being here in the U.S., which is also part of the immigration experience and part of the gain, which I would never have done if I had not come here. Mm -hmm. So this is where this movie deals with that there is, it is in some ways a little bit melancholic, but it also has a positive thing. And the robot, and again, by the way, there is a garbage truck. Yeah, this is kitchen table <laughs> astronomy. It's recycling day. And, and there is Wookiee under the table. <laughs> Wookiee the dog did not like the truck. <laughs> so in this film, the robot dies roughly in the beginning. and so, or, or not dies, but sort of like whatever, like, you know, malfunctions. And uh, Colin Farrell's character is trying to fix it because the girl, his daughter, is very attached to the robot. Mm. And so these conversations are part of how he is thinking about this question of loss, this question of identity in the context of the robot, right? So I think it, uh, it really uh, does something wonderful with that. And Koganoda himself actually... The director of After the, Yang. The director of After At Yang. At Amherst Cinema tomorrow. He came here to the U.S. when he was very young. Uh, like, uh, I think he was a toddler or something like that. And yet he grapples with these particular questions because, and this is, if you see me, even if I've been here for 32 years, and yet for some people, yeah, just by looking at me, you go like, oh yeah, he's different, mm -hmm. right? And same thing, Kogunoda also asked this question, like, you know, that in some ways, yeah, you're an American. And yet people ask this question, but you are an Asian, right? And, and for me also, they would see sort of like South Asian and things like that, and you ask this question, so where are you originally from, right? So those yeah. questions are always there to how to grapple with those. The film very thoughtfully deals with this balance between the loss and the gain and how it shapes our identity. Well, it's interesting, too, because we are now experiencing AI in a way that we haven't been as users of search engines, in particular, you know, like Google and, and Bing and all these other things that are using embedding these artificial intelligent characters that we are interacting with. Some of these interactions have been chilling. There was a big story again in The New York Times about, you know, using... AI and the AI presenting itself with a, an entire dark identity and falling in love with the user. If you haven't read that article, it's chilling. Does this wrestle with the potential dark aspects of it? Because I think maybe that's a trope that's too easy to go down. Khalees likes to say she believes when the rise of the robots happens, it'll be more like C-3PO and R2-D2 where they're there knowing everything and can kind of be really helpful. We seem to be made to suffer. It's our lot in life. This movie does not go into that direction, but I should say that this is, again, because these kind of chat GPT stuff are based upon data that is available, you can already see an inherent bias in terms of what kind of information those chatbots have. Especially if you put them down a direction to come up with a shadow self, they can easily find that information and do it. But also the reverse, meaning to say that you don't have much information, for example, in Urdu. Right. So, for example, if you are trying to figure out what that context is going to be, it's not going to say, I don't know, because it seems like ChatGPT is a man because it never says, I don't know. <laughs> it mansplains it even if it doesn't so, know. But it makes up stuff, right? <laughs> and so I think there is that inherent stuff. So there is a whole conversation to be had about that. But the movie goes in a different direction. And again, sorry about the little bit of a spoiler. But the movie has to be experienced, and that's the reason I'm okay with telling us, uh, talking a little bit about that, because movie deals with what makes you you, and 
it goes from the direction of potential memories, right? Okay, so what are those memories and how does it shape your own identity? And I think that's where this immigration experience and memories really become crucial because, again, to go back to this example, you know me, you've, we've talked, like, you know, we've known each other for about a dozen years or so or a little bit more, but you don't know everything about me because I have other aspects, other aspects of my life which are also in my memory. But that becomes even deeper in terms of immigration experiences because people who know me, including my wife, I have a son, he knows me from this context. But I also have a parent, I have my father in Pakistan, and he knows me from that context. There is a loss because if I were to explain to my son, look who I am, well, that experience of Pakistan makes a, a sort of really crucial personality for me of how I grew up, but it's very hard to transmit that information. Mm -hmm. And the same thing, I would love for my father to know who I am from being spending 32 years here in the US, but that is very hard to convey. Mm -hmm. And so in that context, there is an inherent loss in communicating to somebody who you are in a full picture and it becomes, and, and I should mention, I mean, it happens to everybody. I mean, it's not just the context of immigration because people are displaced here as well. People have multiple contexts in which their identities are shaped. But I think with immigrant experiences, it even becomes uh, much more acute mm -hmm. in that sense. So here in this film, the question is like, what is, who is that robot? Again, you don't think in terms of that thing, but that's the question that the movie is asking, but not in terms of, oh, is the robot like human or not? No, which by the way, the chat GPT questions are related to that thing. The movie is not asking that because the robot itself is not asking this question, doesn't even want to be like human. It is just asking, am I Asian enough? Am I Asian? Which is again, a fascinating question. Colin Farrell character, I mean, he also has a tea shop. This post sort of like an apocalypse world is, unclear what's going on or what happened really uh, and he runs this tea place and the robot really asked this how do you experience tea and he's trying to explain that of how it is and, and then he asked this question can you taste a place mm. in a teacup that is really goes to this question of how do you convey an experience something that you really goes through, embody you, can you explain that to somebody else? And I think that is something that would always be missing. And for this robot, that Can we was... turn a robot into a wine snob? That's what we're <laughs> trying to do all the time when we're tasting wine. We can taste Italy. We just did it on Friday. We can taste Spain. But could we convince a robot to taste those things? Right. And and, and when you're saying that, did you did you really experience that, right? And, and so that was where a little bit of melancholy comes in, like, you know, when the robot realized, like, you know, can you really do that? Can you really, can you really experience place in a teacup? And that is what's missing to a certain degree. After Yang, if you're looking for a good, thoughtful sci-fi film in the tradition of Moon, for example. By David Bowie's son. By David Bowie's and Duncan Jones, uh, or if you're like Solaris or other types of films, I think After Yang is also takes these kind of issues. And I know you're a huge fan of everything, everywhere, all at once. Yes. And the migrant experiences are also central in there. I mean, this is a much quieter. <laughs> <laughs> There's no kung fu in it. <laughs> no, no kung fu in it. 
Wait a minute. I don't want to spoil it like you know, but towards the No, it's uh, so it's come on over to Emma Cinema. Uh, I also want uh, to say watch films on the big screen, especially sometimes people say, "Oh, is is this movie action-packed film so that you want to see it on the big screen?" I would almost say I actually like to go films that are quiet in a theater because it doesn't distract you. Your focus is all on that and so i think the value of going to a cinema is amazing come to amer cinema amer cinema is non-profit membership supported so if you are local come over there and also become a member there are some fantastic events all the time happening and just a little plug a month from now in fact the next science uh, on screen is going to be on the martian Oh. With Montolio professor, Professor Darby Dyer. Oh, wow. So, Who steers the Mars rover on Mars, right? <laughs> From the JPL, the Jet Propulsion Lab. She has done that, yes. And so uh, Darby Dyer is going to be leading that discussion. Come we got to get her on the show. We definitely will. In fact, for the, before the next uh, Science on Screen. But come to Amherst Cinema. Watch the movie on big screen. It's tomorrow, Tuesday at 7 p.m. And in some sense, you'll be part of Science on Screen all over the country. I'll just John, Dr. Salman Hamid at your kitchen table in Amherst. Thank you as always. Thank you very much. What are you watching? <laughs> Come on. Shameless plug for those interested. I would suggest that you go out and read the novella after Yang. It is equally beautiful to what you'll see on screen. And if you're looking for genre fiction that kind of speaks to what Mr. Universe was talking about. Also, Paper Menagerie by Ken Liu is a beautiful thing that talks about that generational divide I advise you get into. But coming up on from the NEPM news report, <laughs> news reporter Nirvani Williams and her piece with retired educator Gwen Agna and photographer Shelley Rotner, who wanted to create a book to help elementary and middle school students explore the meaning of gender. The book is called True You, A Gender Journey, and we'll hear Nirvani Williams report next on The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fab 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Retired educator Gwen Agna, along with the author and photographer Shelley Rotner, wanted to create a book to help elementary and middle school students explore the meaning of gender. They say many kids are starting to reject the male and female binary altogether. Agna is a former principal at Jackson Street School in Northampton, Massachusetts, and current school committee member. She and Rotner spoke to New England Public Media's Nirvani Williams about their book, True You, A Gender Journey. Rotner starts by sharing her favorite line from one of the kids in the book. Well, I know this is radio and you can't see this, but um, this is a spread in the book. And the words are, there are different ways to show and be who you are. It's up to you, how you feel, how you dress, how you act, how you play, learn, and love. And if I may add one other, that there's a child who says, some days I feel like a boy and some days I feel like a girl, and it really doesn't matter. I love cars and my bunny. <laughs> the kids, they speak so simply yet powerfully in explaining how gender is a spectrum. And I wanted to know what prompted you both to make a book dedicated to breaking down these socialized gender norms and making gender expression accessible for kids. It's often so much easier to hear a, a book or to hear children talking in a book than being lectured to about these things. And I think that for me, was the most powerful thing about this, that we could get children to speak their truth and be seen that way and for other children to see them 
I learned a lot, as Shelly said, in writing this, but I also had learned a lot in my time at Jackson Street. This one little girl raised her hand and said, so Miss Agna, if you were born now, do you think you would want to be a boy? And it was such a good question. And I said, well, that is a good question. I like being a girl, but I really wanted to be able to do whatever I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to play sports. I wanted to not have to wear a dress. I wanted to be who I was. And it didn't mean that I had to be somebody else. I just wanted somebody to acknowledge that it was okay for me to be that way. Yeah, that's great. I think it's empowering. And that's one of the things that that a takeaway that the, the children felt that sharing this, then the world gets bigger. I see that you also chose not to include the names of the kids shown in your book. And I wanted to know why that was. Um, I think it comes down to safety as time goes on. And with all social media, you know, we, we have to protect our children in every way. Yeah. And when we were given the what they call the model releases, which are the permission slips to give to the families. The first one they, that we got said that we would use their names. And we immediately focused on that and said to the editor, we can't do that. We didn't think the families would go for that. And we didn't want to expose them any possibility of being identified and then um, anything that can happen that happens on the internet these days. So it was all about safety and support and respect. How do you feel teachers should react when kids are figuring out their identities at school, but haven't come out to their parents yet? Um, I know we saw this in a recent case in Ludlow, um, and I wanted to know your thoughts. Part of our intention for this book is that it serves as a catalyst for conversation. We know that there's a wide range of teachers and some are more informed. And Gwen, maybe you could talk about your curriculum and informing teachers better, just like parents and friends, how to respond. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important for teachers and their principal or the school counselor or whoever to be open and listen to the families if they're concerned that um, you know, their child came home and said, I decided that my pronouns are she and her, and instead of he and him, rather than get upset about it, to turn to the educators in this case and to have a place that they can go and find out rather than quickly, you know, call the superintendent and say, they're talking about these things in my school. We would hope that this could be done proactively and um, I think a book like this does it proactively. I think that teachers can do it proactively as well so that they establish a culture of their classroom that this isn't something either that the children have to feel that they have to hide from home or that they don't even need to necessarily always share at home if they children are very wise. And I think that they may know that when it's time to help their their grownups understand what's going on for them, that they will do it when it's time. That's the former principal at Jackson Street School in Northampton, Gwen Agna, and author and photographer Shelley Rotner. Their new book is called True You, A Gender Journey. And thanks to NEPM's Nirvani Williams for that report. Absolutely spot on. I think so, too. Just saying. <laughs> As somebody who uh, hosted the th three versions of Drag Hamlet at the Shea over the weekend. Uh, and as someone who DJs regularly for drag and burlesque shows, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Get the book. Might be oh, you're not allowed to tell you that. Might be preaching there is a little a book bit that to the you choir with this yes. particular show. <laughs> Tomorrow in the Fabulous 413, we'll talk with Amherst Survival Center director Lev Ben-Ezra about the Empty Bowls fundraising dinner. And a look at a local hero burrito joint supporting local farmers and the local immigrant community. Our director is Tony Mall Chinese Food Dunn. Our engineer is Betsy Do the Math Cordis. Our technical team is Bart Packing the Boxes Rankin, Kara Pack It Up and Get It Gone Foster, and punk rock Dubai. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Total La Mopocina, John De La Fosse, Lee, Little Queenie Harris, and Homebody. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Kalee Smith, and we'll see you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.